Let's talk a moment about expectation versus reality. Every one of us in this room has had an experience where we expected one thing and we got another. Now, sometimes we're expecting something to be mediocre or bad, and we are pleasantly surprised that the outcome is good. It surprises us that something that we had so little expectation for <clears throat> all of a sudden you know, becomes something better. However, most of us probably remember times when we expected something good and were let down by that something. Um, and, I, and I sort of wonder, why is it that the negative experiences hang around in our memory longer than the good experiences? Well, it's because I think in some ways we hate to be disappointed. I don't know if... Uh, I scroll through Reddit a lot. I don't know if you, any of you are Reddit people. Um, but I found a feed that is actually called Expectation versus Reality. And people post pictures of things mostly uh, that they were let down by. And most of it is food. Can we just be honest? So I, I pulled a couple out just for you to look at uh, here this morning. So this is what it's supposed to look like. And that's what it looks like. And I can verify that is, in fact, what it looks like when you pull it out of the container. Next one. <clears throat> this is one of my favorites, actually. Because <laughs> you look in the window and you think, this looks great, but they arranged it just to be in the window. That's, that's brilliant. As brilliant as what that is. Next one. Uh, that's what the sandwich is supposed to look like. That's what it was. Next one. A lovely salad. Yeah, all you are like, yeah. <laughs> I, well, my favorite one about this one, this seems to be a whole leaf of, of lettuce that they just put down like, like, a, like a bowl liner, if you will, to put the things into. Okay, and I think there's just one more. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we expect one thing and we get another. Now, when it comes to food, you can go off that slide, Jed. Uh, when it comes to food or movies or whatever other consumer products, uh, you may want to add to the conversation. It might take a while, but we get over our disappointment. We just decide, you know, well, I'm not going to order that again, or I'm not going to eat there again, or I will never buy an animal-themed sucker ever again. Like, I have learned my lesson. But what happens in more serious situations when our expectations are not met? What happens when we have expectation of our friends and we are let down by them? or our parents, or our spouses, or our children. You can't just walk those off, you know? And relationships are often broken over what someone expected of another person and those expectations not being met. What happens when we have expectations of God 
and God does not meet those expectations in the way that we want him to. And before you want to argue with me and say, well, God is God, he can do what you want, I know that, but you cannot mask the fact that there are a lot of things in your life that you expected God to do some particular thing with, and that didn't happen. I mean, what if you get something totally different than what you asked for? I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Or what if you are asking God and it seems like God doesn't intervene at all? When we study the story of Jacob, we talked often about how God's will interacts with our lives. And Jacob took the most securitous path to where God wanted him to go. But it was easier for us in that case to excuse how rough and tumble his path was because, after all, Jacob did most of the damage to himself. Or it was other people, and in that story, God is, is, is faithful to Jacob even though Jacob, <coughs> even though Jacob does things that should put the relationship in jeopardy. It was his fault and not God's that his life was chaotic and not in a straight line. But what happens when someone is not rebellious? What happens if someone is good and follows God? What do we expect their path should look like? Well, we do think, and we talked about this a lot, remember, it, we think it should be smooth, almost as if there is an exchange we are making with God. God, I'm going to be good, and you need to be gooder. Right? This is, this is what our expectation is. <clears throat> and when our, our expectations are not met, we are left to draw conclusions, not about ourselves or the path we want to take or what God wanted to have happen. We draw conclusions about God himself. Because he didn't meet our expectations for whatever it is. Now, we have to ask ourselves, all right, are our expectations that if we are good, God is gooder, are our expectations wrong? Is that something that we shouldn't think? And, and, and what do we do with the difference between our expectations of God and what the path that our life actually takes? How do we reconcile those two things? We're going to pick back up the story of Joseph today, and if you remember, uh, the story of Joseph, the, the first chapter we read was full of peace and love and harmony. As his brothers banded together to throw him in a well, sell him as a slave, and fake his death. There was great unity among the brothers in that particular movement. But there were two things that we carry into this next chapter of the story of Joseph. And the first one is that God has a dream for his people. And specifically, that dream is going to manifest through Joseph himself, that others will bow down to him as he is doing the will of God. That's the dream, how God is going to move them from this one family to this great nation of people. But the other thing we know, which is just true throughout the story, is that the dream has enemies that want to keep it from happening. And it started with the brothers. 
They did not want to see Joseph take a place of authority over them. And so they acted in such a way to keep that from happening. So we need to keep all this in mind as we head into the next chapter of Joseph's life. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up (coughs) to Genesis chapter 38, which we are going to skim, and you'll find out why in a moment if you don't know what chapter 38 is about. I call this part of our story this morning the story about Judah we wish we didn't have. Genesis chapter 38 tells a truly unsavory story about Joseph's brother Judah. It is a story that does not further the dream narrative. In fact, it does not seem to play any role whatsoever other than to make Judah look bad. So let me give you the summary here. Judah left Jacob's house and went to live near some Canaanites. There he met the daughter of a Canaanite man man named Shua. They married and began to have children. Judah's first son, Ur, married a woman named Tamar. And Ur was so wicked that God decided to remove him from the planet. He, He kills him because he is so bad. Onan... The next oldest brother was ordered to marry Tamar and give her children. So the way it worked is if the older brother died and they didn't have any children, the younger brother would then marry that wife and would give her children, and those children would be considered the children of his older brother and not his. It's weird, but just follow with me on this. Onan knew that the child would not be his, that the child would belong to his older brother Ur. So he made sure that he did not get Tamar pregnant. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took him off the planet as well. Now, Judah had one more son named Shelah, who was not yet of age. He didn't want to give Shelah to Tamar because he's like, well, what if Shelah dies too and we're all left with nothing? So he told Tamar to go live as a widow in her father's house until Shelah was of age. But the truth was that Judah never planned to give Shelah to Tamar. He was too afraid of what would happen. So after a long time, Judah's wife, Shua, died. And Judah, in his grief, went up to a town, was heading up to a town called Timnah. And Tamar, who is back in her father's house wearing widow's clothes, finds out that Judah is on his way there. So she took off her widow's clothes, put on regular clothes, covered her face with a veil, and went and sat at the entrance to the city of a name, which was on Judah's way to um, Timnah. And Judah, in his grief over the loss of his life, when he saw her sitting outside, he thought she was a prostitute and wanted to sleep with her. He offered her a young goat in payment, and as collateral, because he didn't have the young goat with him at the time, he offered her his seal, cord, and staff. They slept together, and Tamar returned home. Judah sent someone the next day with the goat for Tamar, but Not only was she not there, but when the servant asked around for where the temple prostitute was, everyone was like, there is no temple prostitute here. And Judah decides he's not going to pursue it any farther because he doesn't want to be embarrassed by the fact that this woman took 
these important items from him. Three months later, Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant, and he was furious at her that she was pregnant, and he had her brought to his house so that he could burn her to death as punishment for her getting pregnant from someone else than his sons. So she came, and he said, tell me who you slept with. And she said, I slept with the man that owns these things. See if you recognize who seal, cord, and staff these are. Microphone drop. (laughs) He saw they were his, and he declared that she was more righteous than him. And then he gave Tamar to his son, Selah. And for good measure... Tamar had twins, and just as with Jacob, the younger twin tried to get out first and stuck his arm out, and so they tied a a string around his wrist, but then he pulled it back in, and the other one came out first, because we can't have a normal twin birth within the book of Genesis. So, that story exists. Uh, Why is it there? Well, it happened, so it's there. But again, it does not add to the story of Joseph at all, and it does not add to the dream. In fact, it is a messy narrative that further illustrates the kind of people, (coughs) the kind of people that God was dealing with. So what do we learn about Judah? Well, he went to see a prostitute, which we can all agree is not the best thing to do. However, there was nothing unusual about that at the time. Um, The law did not exist yet. There were no rules against uh, people going and doing that sort of thing. It was a common cultural practice. However, we can certainly dislike, and it shows his character, that on his way to mourn his wife, he slept with a prostitute. That just seems, there's a disconnect there. I don't know what it is, but if we think about it, like maybe we'll identify it here. And we don't particularly, we shouldn't particularly like the way he conducts himself. His sons were so bad that God took them out. What does that say about Judah? If he has two sons that God decides are so wicked that they need to be removed. He had some power and he did not use it well. Remember, he's the brother that came up with the plan to get rid of Joseph and to deceive their father. He did not keep his word to Tamar. He only did what was right when she forced his hand and made him do it. And there's one more thing. Where is God in the life of Judah? We don't even know. We have no sense for where God is. God does not seem to be playing an active role in his life. He was living his life how he wanted Okay, let's go back to Joseph. Turn over to chapter 39, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 6. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. 
Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Okay, this sets the basic premise for the rest of the story of Joseph. Uh, We know he had the dream. We know there are enemies to the dream, but this draws us into what's really happening. Because remember, if, if you do, at the end of chapter 37, we have this verse. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the little did they know moment in the story. That God was moving and doing things even though the circumstances that they had created were not, as it seemed, conducive to the dream coming true. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but he ended up in the house of Potiphar, captain of the guard. Was it an accident that he ended up there? Well, verses 1 through 6 seem to tell us that it was not because he gives us another little did they know. What did they not know? Well, what is the difference between Joseph and ultimately everyone else in Joseph's story? It's some simple words. God was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And that, my friends, changes everything. It changes not only everything about Joseph's life, it changes everything about the lives of the people that he had come into contact with. And that statement is our key to understanding the story. God was with Joseph, and that had an effect on everything. Now, was God not with anyone else? Well, we're not told that. I mean, Joseph had to learn about God from somewhere, right? And we're assuming that it was from his family as weird and strange as they are. And we can go back to Jacob's story and remember that Jacob ended up in a fairly good place with God, where he met God and understood who God was. So we're not told one or the other, but we can confidently say that God was with Joseph in a way that was unique to Joseph, in a way that was different than everyone else. And so now we know that Joseph is the one that God has chosen to pour this dream, this promise out on, that it's through Joseph that this is going to happen. But we need to note something. What do we know about Joseph? We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. Based on what we've seen, we don't know really anything about him. This is important for this reason. This story is not about how good Joseph is. None of it is about how good Joseph is. Joseph is not a comparison point to Jacob, as much as we might want to compare the two. This is a story about what happens when the Lord is with someone and how that changes the entire narrative. 
And something else we need to note is this. Who received the bulk of the blessing that was being poured out on Joseph? Potiphar did. I mean, Joseph was elevated within the house, and he became, you know, the number one servant and slave, but he was still a slave. He still did not have freedom. He undoubtedly had more influence and a better life than some of the lower slaves, but he was still a slave tied to Potiphar and his house. So we have to realize that God at this point did not include liberating Joseph and making him a free person as part of carrying out this dream. Why is it important that we note that? Because our expectation of God is that he, if he is with Joseph, then he will free him from this situation. And that's not what happens. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't he raise Joseph up? We don't have an answer yet, other than that God elevated him the situation he was in. But let's move on, because there wasn't enough drama in those six verses, so we're going to get a little bit more here. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak, she was determined, and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me. But I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for health, help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. There's a certain kind of story or movie or TV show that I don't enjoy very much. And it's the narrative about the person that is falsely accused. And everyone believes that that person is the worst person on the face of the earth and they have to spend two hours of my time trying to prove they're not. I, I don't like those stories as much as other stories, mainly because it stresses me out. Seeing someone, uh, it, the injustice of it, the leaps that people make in terms of who that person is or isn't, or why they did or didn't do such a thing, it stresses me out, and I don't want to be stressed out when I'm watching TV or a movie. 
I can just turn the TV off and live my life. There's enough stress there. I don't need to add it from outside sources. This is just such a story. And one of the funnier statements, to me at least, in the Bible, Joseph is described as well-built and handsome, which is always a bad sign. (laughs) I love that term there, well-built. Good for him. This drew the attention of Potiphar's wife who wanted to sleep with Joseph, and this was a precarious position for a slave to be in. There was no one in the house who had more power than Joseph except for Potiphar and his wife. She was off limits, and Joseph knew that, so he refused. No, I will not do this thing. Out of respect for Potiphar and because he did not want to do a wicked thing in sin against God. So now, Leah, we know what he's like. Okay, he is a person of character, and he stands in stark contrast to his brother who was underhanded and slept with a prostitute. The two are just, they're not the same, the two of them. So he was well-built. It drew the attention of Potiphar's wife, and they go through this whole dance. And it's important that we have these statements about Joseph because, again, the last time we saw him, he was a bratty kid who was telling on his brothers and bragging about he was one, how he was one day going to rule everyone. That's all we knew about him up to that point. But the important thing that he did is that Joseph seems to know that God is involved in his story. And so, therefore, he's not making decisions based on just himself, he's making decisions based on what he believes God wants for him. And he acknowledges that it is God that is pushing his life forward. Well, Potiphar's wife didn't take the news very well. Uh, She kept pressing, he kept refusing. And finally, she arranged, we're led to believe, that she put all the servants out of the house and came in and tried to forcefully drag him to the bedroom. To which Joseph does an extraordinary thing He leaves his clothes behind and runs. It's a pretty crazy thing to do, but it shows his commitment to doing the right thing. And here's what she did with this cloak that he left behind. She told everyone that Joseph was trying to make sport of her, which means what? He was trying to rape her. He was trying to rape her. That's what she means. She doesn't mean, oh, he batted his eyelashes at me. Like, no, no, no. She tells this story about how he basically attacked her, and when she screamed, he ran away. And Potiphar found out, and Joseph was thrown into the prison where the king's prisoners were kept. Not the way we would design this story of what it looks like for someone who is doing the good that God wants to get to the end result that we know God is going to bring about. We know because we're cheaters and we read this story when we were like 10. So we didn't know we were cheating at the time, but there's a greater subtext to the story which relates to what Joseph knows and to in contrast with what Potiphar's wife knows. We know, Joseph knows, that Joseph carries in the person the dream of the God of Israel, that this is his future. Potiphar's wife does not know that. 
She doesn't understand what lays ahead for him. We know that because we know the dreams that Joseph was born to rule because of those dreams. She sees him as someone powerful, but in the most shallow of ways. He is well-built after all. We know that he is attractive in every way, so he has this, this attractiveness to him, and she knows that and seeks to exploit it. Thus, Potiphar's wife lacks some information, has some information but misunderstands it, and has some correct information but wrongly exploits it. And in the meantime, you have Joseph, who is so firm in who he is that he knows what God is doing in his life, and he will not move away from the promise. They see the world in very different ways. Joseph is living a life that through the presence of God will end up <coughs> in a place of great power and influence for the purposes of God. And Potiphar's wife, like all the others we have seen so far in this story, hello Judah, can only see what is right in front of her. There is no higher purpose or calling to her life other than to get what she can right now. So let's finish the story. Verses 21 through 23. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. Little did they know. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. What is the key to this story, friends? The Lord is with Joseph. So even in prison, Joseph rose to a position of power. The Lord gave him success in everything he did, and we can assume that his life was better when he rose to that place than it was when he was at the bottom of the heap. Twice now, Joseph has risen to power within two Egyptian constructs, a slave in a home and in prison. But in both of those cases, we know that Joseph was not working to better Egypt, right? God was with him and good things happened because God was with him. He was conscientious and upright, but he was not looking to benefit the empire. The empire itself benefited because God was with Joseph. Now, that's the end of our story for today, but I want us to consider something. Let's get back to the questions we asked at the beginning. What do we do when our expectation of God doesn't, is not met? What if this expectation of God, I will be good to you, and God, you will be good back to me, by blessing me and giving the, and, and smoothing out the road for me. What does this story tell us about that? It tells us two things. Number one, life in God is confidently settled. Do you know what I mean by that? We know, don't we, what the outcome to all of this is going to be for us. Joseph knew what the outcome of all of this was going to be because God was with him. It is confidently settled, but life still has to be lived. It still has to be lived. You still have to get up every morning. 
and do the things you do, you still have to engage in a world that is still trying to kill the dream. A world that's hostile to the dream and is angry that you think the dream is real because they don't want to believe it themselves. Joseph had the dream. He knew the path that he was going to take, and yet at every turn, someone is trying to keep that from happening. His life was lived at great risk. Did Joseph know he was going to become the best slave? No. Did he know that he, did he, was he even confident he wasn't going to be immediately killed in prison? Royal prisoners, that's what happens. If you are not useful anymore, right, you're done. He did not know that either. But God still raised him up, blessing other people in the bad situations he was in. Did it help him too? Yes. But again, not in the way that we expect or how we would write it. And there is something so big about this, church, friends, that God did not remove him out of prison right away. In fact, he's in prison for a long time. Many years he's in prison. This is not something that happens overnight. The narrator doesn't fill us in on the details of how he went from the lowest slave to the top slave, how he went from the lowest prisoner to the top prisoner. And he's still not free. But God is with him. And therefore, everything he does is blessed. And that blessing is for others. The blessing is for others. Just because we know the dream, it does not mean that the way toward fulfilling that dream is easy. And our expectation that it should be is, in fact, wrong. It's not claimed anywhere in this story that because of God, everything will work out, nor is it promised that the key figures will be evilly saved from trouble. But the narrator offers us a glimpse into what life is actually really like, right? That God working in us and being with us is not just for our benefit so our road becomes smooth. That's a selfish thing for us to want and to put on God that he has to do that for us. And we spend way too little time looking for the way that God in us can bless other people. That the promise is not just for us, it's for others. And that perhaps by us living dynamically in the promise that God has given us, that we might literally change other people's lives for the better. How amazing and wonderful that is, that what God is doing in you can help and change other people because he is with you. We should go to God, of course, with what we want and what we ask for. But let's not make the relationship with our God staring at our feet, hoping he gives us the next step that we want and being frustrated when we trip. Instead, Joseph has to live a life where he cannot feel sorry for himself or be frustrated. Instead, he has to live a life where he understands that God is with him and God does good things through that, guys. 
God does good things through that. Joseph lived a hard life. But God is not done with him yet. Amen? And God is not done with us yet. 